Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to votevets.org. We're standing ready. We're not just watching, you know, and doing nothing. We have cap stations. We have B-52s on airborne alert right against the border. Um, We have an entire contingency op that if the bubble goes up, balloon goes up, we're ready on day one. Um, So it's just a matter of how this unfolds. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. As the invasion of Ukraine unfolds, we want to provide timely insights from the experts. So we've launched a series of special unedited episodes separate from our normal content. Today, I'm joined by Ward Carroll, who spent 20 years in the U.S. Navy as an F-14 radar intercept officer, retired at the rank of commander, and went on to serve as the editor of Military.com. He now hosts a popular YouTube channel on military aviation. I brought him on the show to discuss the air war in Ukraine. Ward, or should I say Mooch, it's great to have you on. Uh, either works, I guess, which, uh, whichever persona uh, I'm, I'm using at any given time. You know, Mooch was kind of dead. I feel like Obi-Wan Kenobi, right, when, when Luke Skywalker stumbles on him. He's like, Ben Kenobi? You know, and so the YouTube channel has actually given rise to the Mooch call sign again, which I'm very happy to uh, to wear. And uh, so, yeah, either either works, Ken. Uh, are you at liberty to share the backstory on how you acquired the moniker I, I am. call sign Mooch? I, I describe this in my The Truth About Call Signs episode that I did some months ago. But uh, so my first... Because when you get to the squadron, you get kind of a meta call sign. The first thing that somebody, and some, mostly it's name associations, right? And some are axiomatic. Like if your last name's Bell, your call sign's going to be Taco. If your last name's Campbell, your call sign's going to be Soup. Um, so I was, I was, I am tall and I was skinny at the time. Um, and so our executive officer, a guy named Vodka Gemmel, who got his call sign because he had a penchant for vodka, um, was, uh, he's a big fan of the movie Animal House. And so he kept just saying over and over, Stork is brain damaged. And so my call sign became Stork until we got to our first port call, which was Palma de Mallorca. And this was in 1984 aboard the USS Independence. I was in Fighter Squadron 32. So we get to Palma and I don't have any money and I don't have any anything. And so I was borrowing a lot of stuff. And finally, a guy named Fuji Lansdale just said it, you know, you're a mooch. And that's all it took. And then my name literally for the next, what, 17 years was mooch, you know? And so it was kind of like my Jedi handle and, uh, you know, very proud to, uh, to have had that opportunity for as long as I did. And I'm really happy that I've been able to translate that into uh, a YouTube channel that's, uh, you know, become pretty popular. So you started your flying career at the height of the geopolitical contest with the Soviet Union, and you saw the collapse of the Soviet Union. And now we are witnessing a revanchist Russia invading 
Ukraine and trying to, to terrorize into submission the population of Ukraine. But tell us a little bit about your experience in the backseat of the F-14 with the main rival that you trained against being that that MiG pilot. I would imagine the uh, the MiG-25 pilot when you were up against the Russian Air Force, you obviously, the Russian Navy was your main adversary. They were formidable at the time, right? Absolutely. And that was our pacing threat by a long shot. You know, I, I served, as you suggest, during the Reagan era. And so this was Secretary of the Navy John Lehman, who built a 600-ship Navy. He reintroduced um, sort of a bravado, the intangible that made us uh, have a lot of swagger uh, to go along with our capability. The movie Top Gun came out when I was in my first tour. Um, so all of that, uh, you know, made the officers club on Wednesday and Friday nights particularly kind of raucous. So these were good days to be in the F-14 Tomcat. Our raison d'etre was the long-range air battle against Soviet Bears and Badger long-range bombers that would drop these AS-4s aimed at the aircraft carrier particularly. And so it was forged in that mission. And it was very clear to us what our job was. And we were good at it. The F-14 particularly could go very far away from the aircraft carrier. And we had the Phoenix missile that could shoot upwards of 80, 100 miles. And we could shoot, in theory, six of those at six different targets at the same time. And so this threat was defined, was existential. We had a lot of intercepts against Russians. Uh, the trick was always keep the Tomcat between the Russian airplane and the aircraft carrier. So any photos they took as they flew by uh, included a Tomcat, just to remind them that we were there. It was mostly a Mediterranean Sea-focused situation in my early career, which is the sixth fleet based out of Naples. So we did a lot of stuff with our NATO partners, uh, you know, a lot of what we called bilateral exercises. We did some things with the Egyptians, did some things in the Eastern Med, but always top of mind was the Soviet threat, particularly, as you said at the outset, the Soviet Navy. So we'd be trailed by Krivaks and Savrimanis. I was uh, in 1995 when their aircraft carrier Kuznetsov cruised into the Med for the first time. We actually did a little glasnost or detente with those guys. We brought all of their senior officers over to the USS America, which was the oldest aircraft carrier in the, or one of the oldest uh, in the Navy at that time. We were just finished fighting the Great Bosnian War of 1995 in the Adriatic, which is germane to uh, the situation we have now. But their aircraft carrier was actually broken down off the coast of Tunisia, their brand new aircraft carrier. And they had one airplane on the flight deck that didn't work. And so our helicopters went over there, picked up their, their admiral and some of his staff and some of their pilots, brought them over to this old aircraft carrier, the America, which was a conventional aircraft carrier, not a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. They was going to retire after this deployment, now lives at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of North Carolina, I'm sad to say. But As an artificial reef, not a casualty, correct? Good point. Um, yes, artificial reef that you can dive on and, and, you know, quite an amazing thing. And they actually showed how how 
resilient aircraft carriers are they it took a lot of missiles to sink her when they put her to the bottom um so we bring her we bring that the, the russians this the over because uh, this is post you know follow the iron curtain kind of stuff um and their navy is starting to atrophy is kind of my point and we launched 50 airplanes in a single event off the oldest aircraft carrier that the U.S. Navy has, and their eyes were wide open. In fact, we flew one of the um, um, MiG test pilots in the backseat of one of our F-14s. He was on my wing, and he came back, and he was giddy. I mean, giggling like a schoolboy, and he had this quote, to fly with the Diamondbacks, and that was our mascot, is the greatest day of my life. That's what he said, you know? And so slam dunk, right? Cold War, if it wasn't over before, completely over. And now we pivot into the 9-11 wars and the Persian Gulf. So after that deployment, um, we would just haul ass through the Mediterranean, through the Suez, around the Arabian Peninsula, and up into the Persian Gulf to do no-fly zones, um, or subsequent to that, although I retired in 2002, but, you know, aircraft carriers in the Iraq and Afghanistan war years did not loiter in the med very long. That was just a transit to get to the Persian Gulf and do, uh, you know, Iraqi freedom or, or enduring freedom. So, but to your original point, everything old is new again, to my eyes, in, in the fact that and as this has been bandied about by the intelligentsia in recent days, last 15 days or so, um, Putin never believed that the Cold War ended. He was just keeping his powder dry, sort of figuratively and literally. And that's what we're seeing now. Um, so it makes perfect sense to me. This threat is very defined to, to me. Um, something in my heart has reawakened um, and I, I view this this particular conflict as the, the, the conflict of our lives. I do too. And I want to talk about the no-fly zone. I want to talk about a lot of it. But I want to, want to dwell on that med cruise for just another moment, because I got to believe that your, your hosting of that Russian admiral and his contingent, that joyride for the the... Russian Navy pilot wasn't just being a good host. That was diplomacy. You were, you were chest thumping in some way and, and sending a message, right? Yeah. So Admiral Bill Cross, who was our, what we used to call a battle group commander, now they call him strike group commanders, uh, was a Tomcat guy, type A all the way. Um, and, you know, he was like uniquely American, let's say. Because remember, like I said, the Kuznetsov was broken. They couldn't make water. They're anchored off the coast of Tunisia with one navalized SU-27 on the flight deck that that didn't work. And now you come over to this old American carrier, and we launched 50 airplanes in a single sortie. You know, Um, that was, as I said, an eye-opener for them. And this is why when I hear, hey, Chinese are going to build a conventional aircraft carrier, I'm like, bring it, you know? Um, you almost want them to do that because they'll get bogged down in just launching and landing airplanes and how, how how hard that is, not to mention projecting power from the flight deck. This is something that America is really good at. This is the 100th anniversary of the aircraft carrier. 
in the American Navy, the USS Langley, um, back in 1922. Um, you know, so be proud, Americans, of carrier aviation and what we're doing and what we're going to do with this new class, the Ford, and going forward, you know. And, and so this was a demonstration of the Russians that, you know, we kind of own the seas, and here's why. And I don't know where those Russian officers are now. I imagine they're either passed on or, you know, very senior, or maybe they retired. I mean, this was, what, 1995 till now. Um, but I got to imagine, to your point, that the, the message was received, you know? And, and so I think that sort of is what underwrites my feelings about relative capabilities between these two militaries as we, again, the chattering class um, has their data and their points of view. Um, and I know this is what we want to discuss with our uh, no-fly zone and other options on the table uh, part of our conversation. For all of the attention that that chattering class has paid over the last few years to Putin's massive investment in his military arsenal, what is your gut assessment on how well it's been spent, given how the last few weeks have gone, especially when it comes to the Russian Air Force? So this is a uniquely Russian sort of acquisition strategy, which is machines, technology, it's always derivative of Western learnings for the most part. Um, that's why their airplanes look like ours every step of the way. And, you know, I mean, you can see, starting with the SU-27 and the MiG-29, these were just like F-15s junior, you know. Um, you're like, come up with an original idea, <laughs> you know. So, however, and this is what we're seeing in the field, is the the Russian mindset does not attend to the well-being of the troops. And, and that stands in stark contrast to how the U.S. military operates, especially with an all-volunteer force, which has been since the draft ended post-Vietnam. So this is what we're seeing with respect to morale, logistics, other basic execution. Their troops haven't been fed for days. Their officers have not been paid for months. And this really is the limiting factor of the offensive power of Putin's military. So there, there is what they look like in terms of orders of battle on paper and what we're seeing in terms of their capability uh, is miles apart. And, and so as we wonder what's Putin's next move, will he take Poland? Will he go after Romania? My question is, can he take Kiev? You know, and, and how bogged down is he already and will he continue to be with this misadventure that he's launched into in Ukraine? So I, I think that we really, the Western world, particularly NATO, needs to view this as an aha moment uh, in terms of the threat that the Russian military poses to NATO. I'm not saying it. they don't pose a threat. They do. They have numbers. They have an Air Force. They have 
you know, weapons. And then it's always the nuclear option part, which is a deterrent in terms of, you know, that's what John Kirby's saying from the podium, you know, in the press room. Like, if we give MiG-29s to- Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. Yes, Admiral John Kirby, right. who I've known since he was a lieutenant. He was the PAO for the Blue Angels when I first dealt with him. Um, and uh, good guy, been in the uh, inside the Beltway for a long time, uh, master of the risk communications to the point that sometimes it makes my head explode. Um, and so every word parsed out, everything underreacting, when some of us are just hot, you know, hot-blooded, maybe that's good. But he has said, we don't want to do anything that will be viewed by Putin as upping the ante. And, and so, um, personally, I'm not so sure that that's where we are, but um, this is what we're going to see as this unfolds. Um, so, I think the bottom line, Ken, is um, NATO should not fear Putin's threats or the capability of the Russian military at this point. And that includes the Navy. So the other thing you don't see uh, is in the Adriatic, you have the USS Harry S. Truman and that strike group, which has a lot of offensive power, you know, cruise missiles. Also, we have submarines all over the place um, and, and places that, you know, people don't realize they are. So, you know, you should feel good about this, uh, America and Europe. Um, so, and these, we're standing ready. We're not just watching, you know, and doing nothing. We have cap stations. We have B-52s on airborne alert right on, right against the border. Um, we have an entire contingency op that if the bubble goes up, the balloon goes up, we're, we're ready on, on day one. Um, so it's just a matter of how this unfolds. But it's more than simply that passive monitoring and the alert crews awaiting the the bubble going up. We are providing active assistance. When you look at the tracks of the the NATO E3s, surely they're providing intel to the Ukrainians. When you look at the shipments going in, I sometimes get tired of the narrative that that the West is is doing nothing, although I share your frustration with the the pronouncements coming out of the the Pentagon, the the hesitation and the the risk aversion. The truth is a lot is being done. Exactly. One of the headlines of that narrative has been the apparent hold that the Pentagon has placed on the transfer of those Polish MiG-29s to the Ukrainian Air Force. Is that is the value of that transfer overblown? Has it taken on a life of its own in in the media? What's your assessment tactically of the use of that handful, uh, that squadron probably of MiG-29s that is stuck in Poland? Well, uh, the only way I can answer that is to unconditionally accept the opinion of the Ukrainian government. And they say they need them. And they say if they had them, that that would turn the tide of the air war. So I don't have any intel in terms of, you know, how many fully mission-capable airplanes do they have on any given ramp? What has their sortie count been since the early days and the ghost of Kiev and all of this other stuff that it looked like they were taking it to them? You know, uh, that, that struck me uh, very acutely. Um, I saw that meme, and it had all of the airplanes that the ghost 
shot down uh, on that day, ace in a day. And I, I just, I actually did an episode about it. Um, There's sort of an homage, the legend of the ghost of Kiev that had 2 million views in 48 hours. Um, and, you know, I was criticized, hey, you don't know this is true. I'm like, I, I don't care. I'm biased. You know, hey, you don't know it's not true, but I'm biased towards this fight, this, this, this idea. And, and this is why I, I love what the president has, has, how he's stepped up. You know, this guy who was dismissed as a, a lightweight comic and now is, you know, an example for every nation's leader. And if he's killed, he's a martyr for all eternity. Um, you know, and, and so he can't lose at this point. So I get reports from the the ministry there that's broken down twice a day. Um, and those things are, you know, obviously it's the Ukrainian point of view. I wouldn't say it's propaganda, but, but you know, they want to be sort of forward-leaning, upbeat. They want to mute the bad and, and accentuate the good. So they these things and the other things I've I've heard the former president um, uh, say yesterday was we need those airplanes. So I just accept that, absent any other way to say no, you don't. Um, the thing that came up was uh, you know what if we why don't we send them A10s? Why don't we send them F16s? It's like okay to train a, a you know pilot corps in an airplane they're not familiar with takes a long time. More time than, than we have. Um, but to give them airplanes they're already familiar with um, takes no time. So I, I guess that's a long answer, Ken, for I, I think this would help. It, it, it's got to help. Plus, the show of support uh, is another sort of maybe, you know, chink in his armor, meaning Putin, um, that'll convince him to, to take, take an off-ramp here. Um, and I'm, again, Chattering Class said a lot about there are no off-ramps and he's, you know, the only way out is nuclear weapons. Um, but I, I just think that we 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 are past the point uh, where this is a good idea. We're giving them Patriot missiles, which is a fantastic uh, idea. We're giving them, you know, javelins. We're, we're giving them RPGs. We're giving them anti-tank weapons, stingers, you know. I think we should give them, we should go all, all, all Mujahideen, you know, like we did when the Soviets were in Afghanistan on them here. Um, and that's a start, right? I think he listed, we need anti-aircraft weapons, we need anti-tank weapons, we need ammo. So let's give them as much of that as they, they need. And then the rest is, you know, presence, as you suggest, ELINT, although they're doing most of their comms uncovered, you know, so... Um, I'm not sure they need a whole lot from from the uh, the Eland assets, the E3s, but whatever they get, you know, that kind of Intel fusion is great. Um, and then see what happens in terms of the world opinion based on the atrocities that we see coming out. You know, what what happened at, at Mariupol yesterday with that maternity hospital? You know, that that's one you know five thousand pound bomb in in the middle of that facility that did great devastation. I think luckily nobody was killed, but those images of pregnant women coming out, holding their bellies and, and, you know, there's no way that if this ramps up and now you see people getting shot in the streets and toddlers, you know, in their parents' arms as they get gunned down, you know, we're not going to let that go un, 
uh, attended to. Un- there will be a-, a reaction where we will up the ante until eventually it could get to be, you know, first world on first world. I think it's hard to overstate the importance of that moral and symbolic support as well, even if a squadron of MiG-29s doesn't change the the fundamentals of the air war, the fact that Zelensky is asking for them, the fact that he is fighting this fight for everyone. Uh, I think I appreciated hearing you say you were biased because if ever there was a time to pick a side, it's a fight like this. I, I think so. And, and, and I don't think we should stand on ceremony about NATO or EU. You know, at this point, I think that's a technicality. I think that's, that's, that's weak sauce. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he's shown, he's demonstrated to the Occidental world, to Europe, to America, this is what courage looks like in a, in a time of, of trial. I'm fighting for not just my freedom, but you're only one or two degrees removed from this threat to your freedom. And so if that doesn't resonate at long last, then we don't, we don't deserve what we have. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Let's talk about that juxtaposition, the courage on one hand of the Ukrainian defenders on their home soil against a Russian invasion, which it appears is largely conscript. Uh, and I'm going to ask you about the the importance of, of morale and good training and discipline on the battlefield. And my prompt is going to be this, this apparent I- intel we're hearing that Russian pilots are afraid of their own anti-aircraft batteries. Part of the reason they are are not succeeding as they're afraid of being shot down by their own units. What role does training and morale play in a, a battlefield scenario like that? I mean, we, we could not imagine that as, as American pilots. Well, we could because we've had Hornets shot down by... Fair enough. We could imagine it, but not on the, the scale that we're seeing No, in so Ukraine. I think your point... So let me segment the question to training as one thing and then morale as another. So I think they're... Tactical pilots' fear of getting shot down a blue-on-blue is a function of training. 
um, that you know that that's not a, that wouldn't be a a political statement by their air to air or their their SAM operators. It's just they're they're not smart enough to know that that's a Russian MiG, not a Ukrainian MiG. They they're, they don't they're not doing any of the IFF stuff. They're just firing wildly, just indiscriminately, and that would scare the hell out of you. You know the return to force profiles don't matter. You know separating chaff from wheat in a, you know, very Battle of Britain type scenario um, is a tough problem inherently. And then if you have untrained operators on top of that, yeah, that's scary stuff. So that, and this is what is being revealed, you know, in the years since um, the end of the Cold War and the, you know, the, the presence that they've had and how Putin came to power, then shared power for a little bit and then re-seized power, um, the military has been, I don't want to say ignored, but they're not on the step because as we've tried to figure out, okay, what's the pacing threat? And for 20 years, it was this asymmetric war and the Quadrennial Defense Review was about body armor and mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles and fighting, uh, you know, uh, not even a nation state, fighting, you know, these in, this insurgency that didn't have an air force. And then suddenly like, okay, look, now China and Pacific and so forth. So now it's the, you know, return to pure conflict and all of that. So meanwhile, the Russians, they're like, what's our threat? You know, and so they're, they don't know what to train to. Their domestic priorities have allowed the military to atrophy. Um, and so they're, they're suffering from the same thing that we thought we were suffering from, except it's even worse. And now it's exposed itself, right? So now let's, we're talking about morale. So what I'm hearing um, from both American intel sources and these dispatches that I'm getting from the Ukrainian government is their morale is terrible. As I said a few minutes ago, they're unfed. They're poorly trained. They're in, you know, surrounded by conscripts, and now they have the Syrian conscripts in, in their midst. So you have some elite forces like Spetsnaz, which is their Delta Force or their SEAL Team Six, who've also had limited success. You know, they were supposed to be taking all of these airfields, and and they were repelled on day one and day two, and that's what hamstrung them right from the get-go. And now you have these convoys that are stretched out and so forth and so on. So, um, you know, if you're not fed or paid, that that's kind of as basic as it gets for the, you know, conduct of a modern military, not to mention the conduct of a Byzantine military. Um, so what I'm hearing is they're, they're really, you know, in a bad way already, day 15. And so, and they were kind of, in that way, when they stepped off the line of departure, I'm hearing that they were lied to about what was going on, that there was just an exercise. And then suddenly you, you're strolling across the border. And in some cases, the, the grunts didn't even know that they were in Ukraine, you know? And, and so if you have to lie to your troops to get them to do, go into harm's way, um, as soon as they become agents of free will because of the circumstance, they're going to desert and... They're not, they're going to throw their weapons down. And so this, I don't say will matter, but it can very much matter 
as we go forward here, because this isn't going to get any better for Putin. It's going to get worse. And he's already sort of in, in, in extremis with respect to these things. You mentioned the Spetsnaz. We had uh, Navy SEAL Dan Barkov on the show right before General Andrei Sukhovetsky was killed. So I didn't get to ask him about it, but that's a major general in the Spetsnaz. What is the impact of a loss like that, given that it's only one person? But but how does how does losing a major general in an elite corps like that impact overall morale, even it's national huge, morale? Huge. Now, I don't know what the nation knows about that, right? But certainly in the ranks, that's a huge loss. And what that means is any of us can be killed. If that guy got killed, then we're all targets. You know, so that that does erode morale. Um, and I think in this case, because you're already questioning whether this is a just cause or not, because if, if a guy like that gets killed and you're like fighting for your freedom, then you double your resolve. But in this case, because they're, you know, these are agents of, you know, Let's just say they're, they're thinking beings, particularly in these special operations forces. You know, I, I don't know if I'd attribute that to the, the conscripts and, and whatever. They're just doing what they have to do to, to get by day to day. But um, the elite forces are, are professionals. And so they're not, they're not laboring under any delusions of what this is all about, you know, and make Russia great again. And who's the aggressor here? So I, I think the bottom line... Ken, is that, that that's a huge blow to morale. Let's talk no-fly zone enforcement. I believe that you and I might have overlapped. Did you fly Operation Southern Watch missions in southern Iraq? Yeah, I did. Did I. Uh, I did in 95, 96, and then 97 and 98. Talk about just how involved an actual no-fly zone is. It's not what the media portrays, a couple of flights scaring off intruders coming in. It is a round-the-clock operation, birds up in the air the entire time, major assets like like airborne warning and control, uh, refuelers up in the air all the time. Can you give us the short version of just how expensive a legit no-fly zone is? Well, this the expense piece was the logic that um, – you know, the Bush 43 administration used to invade Iraq. You know, they're like, that oh, that no-fly zone is really expensive, everybody. Um, so we're going to have to do regime change here, um, you know, because we can't afford to do the no-fly zone anymore. So, which, which we're not endorsing or advocating here. <laughs> You're just making the point. I'm just making the point um, to, the, to the, the issue of expense, right? So, in fact, I just did an episode uh, with my good friend Hoser Miller, uh, who's a Hornet pilot, about the blocking and tackling the elements of a no-fly zone. So you start with local air superiority. Usually local air superiority comes post-conflict. Um, the other thing you need is sort of either a NATO mandate or a UN uh, you know, resolution that you're operating under, which makes any, any kinetic stuff not an act of war. If you're just complying with a UN mandate, like we did. If if if, if I had shot down a MiG twenty five that was going after a UN U two during Operation Southern Watch, that wouldn't have been an act of war. That would just be I'm complying with this UN resolution. So there's some paperwork, let's just say, that you need going into this um, to give you the high ground. 
And then you need a joint task force. You need a joint forces communications command center, JFAC. Um, so that has to go somewhere, you know, Vincenza, um, somewhere in Poland, maybe aboard the USS Harry S. Truman in the Adriatic. And now you write an air tasking order. So as you said, you've got to have tankers airborne. These are heavy tankers, KC-10s, KC-135s. Then you need airborne early warning, AWACS, E-2Ds off of the aircraft carrier. Then you need uh, jamming, suppression of enemy air defenses. So in that, in today's case, in an hour day, that was a prowler. Now it's a growler, an EF-18 that has to be airborne at all times in case there's a pop-up surface-to-air missile threat like we had in southern Iraq or also in, in Bosnia when I was doing that, that operation. Um, now, having said all of that, the inherent problem with doing this over Ukraine is you are, particularly if you're in the northern, eastern part of the country, you're in range of Soviet, Soviet, Russian SAM systems, these S-400s. So what is the rules of engagement if they light you up? So in Southern Watch, if a SAM site lit you up, you could launch anti-radiation missiles at that site. So if a Russian S-400 site lights up one of our airplanes, and they will know because they have what we call raw gear in the airplane that says you're being lit up or even tracked or locked, not to mention they just shot a weapon at you. You can see all these things in, in the cockpit, but let's say they just lock you up, which is provocative. Am I allowed to now have growlers launch, you know, advanced anti-radiation missiles at, at that site? And now does that become an act of war? Not to mention, what if you have a, a you know, an air-to-air engagement between a Russian SU-27 and, and an F-35? You know, and the F-35 inevitably sh- shoots down that Russian airplane. Okay, the, now what? All right, so what is the ROE? Is it escort them and wait for them to do something stupid? You know, um, don't fire until fired upon kind of stuff, right? Top Gun, ROE. Um, these are the details, as we just say, omni, omni, no fly zone. Um, yeah, we can do it. Um, but you guys have to all be prepared for the other shoe dropping, you know, and, and that really could be. It's not, you know, alarmist to say World War III is in the, is in the mix if you do a no-fly zone. And just to, to put a fine point on this, we're not just talking about scaring SU-27s back over the border into Russia. What air superiority means is destroying any threat on the ground. Uh, it would mean if you're aim is to truly achieve air dominance. It would mean destroying those threats that can reach over the border, so the ones inside Russia. It would be a heck of a lot more involved than simply having a a combat air patrol, having an orbit over Ukraine to to scare Russian fighters back home. You got to kill people on the ground. If you want to do it and, you know, mitigate the risk to our our forces, NATO forces, you know, Libya is a bad analog because they didn't have an integrated air defense. Uh, you know, we did successfully execute a no-fly zone over Libya at the fall of the Gaddafi regime. Um, but that's not a good, you know, that's not the same of, of what we're talking about here. The Libyan threat did not rival what the Russian threat is. 
you know? So I guess it comes down to what are we, what are the consequences? What are we willing to, you know, to risk in, in preserving the status quo and, and preserving the country of, of Ukraine and, and answer President Zelensky's pleas? You know, where, where, where are we? Where does the line live? And again, are we going to stand on ceremony, not to be too insouciant about it, about NATO and who's in and who's out? Um, I guess we can, but but now you're going to, well, we're, we've already changed the world order, but if we give, if we allow Putin to take Ukraine in toto, now he's got a land bridge, Black Sea's no longer, you know, a, a Western friendly place. Um, I, I do not believe he would go beyond that. Um, and his, you know, this is the make Russia great again thing to unite Russian peoples. Starts to sound very Third Reich-ish. Um, you know, so I think we need to honestly take a look at what happens if, if we allow, allow that to be the outcome here. And, and I don't think you can overstate the, the degree to which that changes the, the world order and what can hap- what will happen on, in the wake of that. And I'm not suggesting we just wantonly go toe-to-toe with the Russians at this point. But in some, as this unfolds, that option may be seized from us. Where then is your risk threshold set? Um, mine is I do not believe we should allow him to take Ukraine. So in such time, it appears that We've reached a tipping point where the Zelensky government is falling, not to mention has fallen. Then we say tilt, you know, and maybe we're already there. Um, although it looks like they're doing a great job of keeping him out of the capital, keeping the Russians out of the capital, uh, maybe even retaking part of the east. I'm hearing some that they've retaken ground. Ukrainian forces have retaken ground. Um a lot of our support hasn't arrived yet, and so we'll see how that nets out in the days to come. But let's just say it, it looks like that Zelensky uh, is about to lose the country. So my matrix would be at that point, we do institute a no-fly zone, including all of the associated suppression of enemy air defenses and everything else that's we've just talked about in the execution of that no-fly zone. And we give them a very clear sense of what the ROE is to include we won't shot, we won't shoot until we're shot at, and we have a lot of tactics that we can we can you know reasonably assume that ROE, another Western capability uh, that we should be proud of. And then see what happens at that point. Does he flinch? Does he take the off ramp? Is it effective? Because I'm just looking at those convoys. I'm like, if we had A-10s, you know. And I know they're doing this. I saw some footage today that uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman t- tweeted about them picking off the lead tank and the trail tank in a column and just creating massive chaos with both direct fire and indirect fire. Um, and all the armored dudes uh, and, and other, you know, land army guys are like, this is awesome. I mean, look at that professionalism. This is, this is the way it's done. So I'm like, bravo, cool. But imagine you had a you know, five A-10s, you know, it would be highway to hell junior, right? And and so 
we could take care of this in very short order, um, to quote Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now, right? So I, if at some point this, how it's being parsed out in the press room of the Pentagon is, is really sort of, um, you know, it, it's kind of theoretical, you know, and, and in reality, we're, we're already, we've already crossed that Rubicon, you know, we're already there. Um, and I, I don't know if we, it was, we didn't think he'd do it, you know, and then suddenly people, well, hey, when do the Olympics end? Because that's probably the time. And in fact, that's what happened. And now we're like, okay, wow. Um, now what? But I think, as we said, this is the, this is the, the conflict of our times. And if we believe in democracy and freedom and republics and agency, um, you know, this, this is, this is where we can take a stand. I mean, we fought these asymmetric wars with this abstract notion and a little bit of nation building thrown in there for, for two decades, you know, and, and at times we look kind of like, you know, punks. And, and, and so now here's a real, like, the thing that we built the military for, $725 billion a year worth, and and so not to mention NATO. So what are we going to do? Right, again, I'm not saber-rattling here, um, but I am truly um, pissed off. I can tell, as am I. Before I let you go, can you share your thoughts not on our capabilities and and what we might be able to do should we get more involved, but on the unbelievable heroism of that Ukrainian frontline soldier who has that that stinger on his shoulder uh, or that, that javelin and what they are going through right now on the outskirts of Kiev or trying to retake uh, Kharkiv. Actually, Kharkiv is still holding, I believe, Mariupol has fallen. What must it be like for them? Um, well, it... Okay, so imagine your wife and two toddlers have evacuated. Hopefully they'll make it to Poland. You don't know because you've lost comms with them. Um, you've seen parts of your city blown to bits by indirect fire. And then you hear the rattle of tanks coming down the way, you know, so you've already given yourself to the higher power. You know, you've, if you've ever been in a circumstance where you realize that I felt it acutely when I was an embedded journalist in Afghanistan, and I realized as we're walking through a Taliban village at night, it's not up to me anymore. So just, just shut up and keep walking, you know, and there's sort of a, this thing that hits you at those points. So I, I think that's what they're all about. And I just think about my neighborhood here in Annapolis. If, if I looked down the way and there was, you know, an adversary coming down the street, um, what would my reaction be? So they, they are fighting for their lives. They are fighting for their country, something that they were led to believe in these, these precepts of freedom. They took us at our word and they started to make some very deliberate moves to being a civilized member of the League of Nations and a global trading partner and a place where you would like to visit and so forth and so on. Arts, sports, all the things that Americans 
desire and the, the things we would want other nations to be. And now suddenly it's being wrested away from them at the hands of a maniacal tyrant. So this isn't an abstract. They're there and they will fight to the death and they are talented. You're seeing it like I just described. They know where to put direct and indirect fire to hamstring a column of Russian tanks. And as this goes on, they'll get more and more sophisticated. They'll get better trained and we will have a hand in that in in all kinds of mysterious ways. Um, We know how to do that. And this is why some three-letter agencies exist. And there will be an insurgency. There will be a resistance. And when they have the will against those who do not, this gets back to our discussion about morale, history shows that they have the edge. So I, I, I salute them. What I'm seeing, and to include the ghost of Kiev, right? One Ukrainian MiG-29 driver alone and unafraid shooting down six Russian airplanes in a day is a very realistic scenario to me. And I've heard as much from uh, sources at that MiG-29 squadron. So my my entire conscious mind is with them. Um, and, you know, I don't want to sound trite, but, uh, you know, I just have to believe they're going to prevail. And, and I think they're, what they show the world should be met with support and where we can help without busting the globe in a million bits, we should. Lord Carol Mooch, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great having you. Thanks for the opportunity, Ken. Thanks again to Ward for joining me. To hear more from Ward, visit his YouTube channel or follow him on Twitter at Ward Carroll. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.